0: Urgent care often sees us living with diagnostic uncertainty. Does that ring any bells? Hello and welcome to this week's Urgent Bite, brought to you by the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose, and today I've been thinking about Bell's Palsy. I've used the sport of strongman as inspiration for a few injuries in previous podcasts and it is strongman again that started my CPD brain turning this week. But this time it's not an injury, nor is it actually related to the sport. One of the modern greats of strongman 2018's World's Strongest Man, Hafthor Julius Bjornsson, is a recognisable face in the world of strength. At 6 foot 9 inches tall, 210 kilograms, and some distinctive tattoos, the Icelandic giant is hard to miss, and many of you may well have seen him as the mountain in Game of Thrones. But in 2017, he was diagnosed with a Bell's palsy, resulting in a typical facial paralysis. And while he recovered, he still has a slight weakness that persists. So it was watching Thor in action recently that I started thinking about Bell's palsy, and I wanted to share a few take-home points that I have gleaned from my reading. So to start with, Bell's palsy is an eponymous condition. Sir Charles Bell was a Scottish surgeon, anatomist, neurologist and artist born in Edinburgh in 1744. His artistic skills can be seen if you visit the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh, which some of you may remember I talked about as part of my Medical Mystery Tour podcast of the city. It features some of his wax anatomical models and paintings, one of which I remember very clearly – Painting of a man whose spine is in extreme extension, lying on a bed suffering from tetanus. This was one of the many historical items that hammered home how fortunate we are to have eradicated or managed diseases that, back in the 1800s, were so devastating. Bell has another connection to my medical mystery tour podcast. He volunteered to help during the Battle of Waterloo although it is suggested that he had a very poor outcome from the amputations that he performed. But he had a surgical assistant at Waterloo by the name of Dr. Robert Knox. Knox was the anatomist who was involved in the shady world of body snatching that helped keep anatomy specimens on tap for medical students before the Anatomy Act of 1832. He was the recipient of the murder victims in the infamous Burke and Hare cases. Now, a number of people had described the facial paralysis we associate with Bell's Palsy, the earliest being a Persian physician back in the 10th century. But it was Bell who described the role of the facial nerve and the neuroanatomical basis for the palsy, so it was his name that got attached to the condition in 1821. So the Bell's Palsy is a facial nerve palsy that causes a unilateral facial droop. It affects eyelid function taste on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, it causes reduced tearing, inability to raise the eyebrows, and ipsilateral hyperacusis. It is idiopathic, with the underlying cause being unknown. Key differentials to consider are stroke and brain tumour, as well as Guillain-Barre syndrome, MS, encephalitis, Lyme disease and sarcoid. Bell's palsy is a diagnosis that can be made clinically, usually by excluding other causes of facial nerve palsy. A Cochrane review showed the benefit of early treatment with corticosteroids, and another Cochrane review suggested that antivirals in addition to steroids showed no clear difference in rates of incomplete recovery. Now. A key differential to consider is Ramsey-Hunt syndrome in which the Zoster virus has reactivated in the geniculate ganglion of the 7th nerve. So if you see vesicles in the ear or mouth, then antivirals are required. Now, in order to make a sound diagnosis, we need to be happy that we are diagnosing a lower motor neurone problem and referring someone with an upper motor neuron lesion for acute workup at the hospital. Differentiators that help us consider Bell's palsy versus a stroke include the forehead being spared in an upper motor neuron problem, so the patient cannot raise their eyebrow in a Bell's case. A lack of speech, limb and pupil involvement also suggests Bell's, and any issues here should have us thinking stroke. Also, hyperacusis and decreased lacrimation is more likely in Bell's. Bell's is usually a slower onset, hours and days, rather than a stroke being sudden. Now it is at this point that I started to wonder about my confidence levels when it comes to making the diagnosis of a Bell's palsy. Often in urgent care we're faced with diagnostic uncertainty, and when the differentials include something life, limb or function threatening, then we are always more acutely aware of erring in favour of the patient. So if you're not confident that you can say that this is a Bell's palsy, if any part of the story or exam does not fit, then a referral for further workup might be the call that you make. But in reading around this topic, I found a paper that was very interesting to read. Indu Rua et al. published a paper in the Clinical Medicine Journal in 2019 called The Impact of Misdiagnosing Bell's Palsy They were a team working out of Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Trust in England and they did a retrospective observational study over three years looking at the medical records of patients discharged with Bell's Palsy This found 118 patients, which after exclusions left 46 28% had been referred from primary care only six patients were diagnosed without neuroimaging, meaning that 86% had either had CT, MRI, or corrupted Doppler ultrasound. In their discussion, the authors acknowledge that Bell's can sometimes be a difficult diagnosis to make, but they go on to point out that Bell's cases diagnosed through their ED involved multiple clinicians and imaging modalities. They felt that in most cases there were clear historical and physical findings that would have made the diagnosis of Bell's clear and say that the delay in starting corticosteroids due to the referrals for other opinions and imaging could mean a reduced chance for the Bell's to resolve completely. Their conclusion points to a lack of confidence in diagnosing a Bell's palsy in both primary care and secondary care. Although, I think a limitation in their study is that they have no data on how many cases of Bells were being diagnosed and managed in the community, as they only used discharge data. Their comment about primary care was based on the 28% of their cases being referred in. This is an open access paper, and it's worth reading as it does provide food for thought. They have a table that helps to differentiate a Bell's from a stroke, and it does highlight the need for a thorough, accurate history backed up by a thorough examination. However, this to me highlights the difficulties of being an urgent care physician, living with risk and uncertainty amidst the spectre of a busy waiting room. With choosing wisely being a consideration in a cash-strapped health system, it can be difficult to thread the needle and I think we're often left sitting on the fence in urgent care. That said, shared decision-making is always good in these situations, so asking a colleague for a second opinion or speaking to a specialist for advice can help us make that decision. So my take-home from today is to review the paper linked in the show notes, as it does cover the neuroanatomy and presenting history and clinical findings of a Bell's palsy having a good refresh of this will help our confidence in diagnosing. And if in doubt, ask for help, remembering that delaying diagnosis of Bell's has consequences, just as missing a stroke does. But being thorough and discussing with colleagues should help us find the right path. Also check out the two Cochrane reviews that looked at steroids and antivirals. And finally, always remember to think of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. We should also remember that in Bells, the eye needs protection with good lubrication and advice on eye care, and we should be arranging follow-up with an appropriate person following local policy. ENT and ophthalmology are often worth consulting, and we must also remember to counsel patients about the potential for the palsy not to resolve, and to consider referral for psychosocial support. Now, If you have any comments, questions, suggestions or corrections, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz. We'll be back again next week with another podcast. I look forward to seeing you all then. But for now, thanks for listening.